Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For this concert, I wanted very much to introduce this year's mentor composer. Each year, starting actually two years ago, we featured a different composer. We started with John Harbison and then John Corleano last year. And this year, Aaron Kernis joins us a number of times as mentor composer of the Albany Symphony. And he'll be here for a, a different sets of performances. We just performed a group of pieces by him on the concert you're about to hear, as well as uh, he'll be back in the spring in May for our big American Music Festival. And he'll also come back to work with some young composers, to work a little bit more with the with the orchestra. And uh, in this role, he's sort of just helping the orchestra, helping young composers, and helping to design our season. So I wanted very much, since the orchestra has not played his music before, to do a kind of introductory concert. And so I essentially invited Aaron to co-curate a concert about music that has a really important significance to him, as well as some of his own music and and a work that he himself arranged. So he and I concocted a very interesting, I must say, a rather epic concert uh, in that it's a big, a lot of pieces, five pieces on the program, uh, but a fascinating combination of works or confluence of works. And I must say that one of the things he said about this concert is that he loves the way the pieces talk to each other, that on a concert, an interesting concert, the the pieces don't only exist in their own on their own terms, but they actually kind of interact with each other, and hopefully, uh, each piece sheds a certain light on the piece that follows it. So we began our concert with a pair of pieces. The second of which is a piece of Aaron's, and the first is the piece that inspired the piece of Aaron's. It seems that a few years back, uh, the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, a wonderful chamber orchestra in New York City, conductorless but wonderful nonetheless, commissioned a group of composers to write what they called New Brandenburgs, inspired by Bach's magnificent six masterpieces, the Brandenburg Concerti. Uh, They invited five very different composers, each to adopt one of the Brandenburgs and to create their own new work in some way inspired or drawn from that work. So these were not, in any sense, uh, arrangements and were not to be closely related to the original works, but simply were to take as their inspiration uh, the original works. And and Aaron picked what in some ways I think is the most unusual and uh, frankly unconventional of all the Brandenburgs, the one that I think is the least often played. It's the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 6. So we'll begin our concert with the 6th Brandenburg, and then we'll follow that immediately with the piece of Aaron's that he wrote uh, for this set of Orpheus concerts. It's a work called Concerto with Echoes. The Brandenburg is particularly unusual uh, because of the orchestration. You know, each of these Brandenburg concerti features a very different orchestration, different instruments from those around it. So these six pieces, really, I think, from what I've read and and studied, these pieces were only a a very small selection of works from the period of time that Bach spent in Cotton, Germany. And he wrote a great number of instrumental pieces, but collected these particular six, I think, almost as a kind of a a calling card to show future employers just what he was capable of, the the incredible range and diversity of of pieces he could create. So as I said, each piece um, occupies 
is a very different world. And one of the pieces has two solo flutes and a violin. Another has a violin solo, a flute solo, and a harpsichord solo. Another is for mixed instruments. And the sixth, strangely, is a work that features no violins whatsoever. It's um, a work that features two solo violas, as well as a cello, two gambas, which actually these days are often taken by cellists, instruments sort of uh, similar, somewhere between the cello and the viola, a bass and a harpsichord. So this work only features seven solo instruments, and the two violas have these extremely prominent parts. But because there are no violins, the whole work doesn't have any real high partials to it. You don't really, the treble clef or the upper partials of the instruments are not really explored very much. And so it has a sort of dark, rich warmth to it that's entirely unique. Also, it's it's entirely unique in that in Bach's time, the viola was simply not considered a solo instrument. It was always tucked in there inside the string quartet, inside the, ense- the string ensemble, and rarely, if ever, emerged as a solo instrument. So in a way, Bach's writing this concerto for two solo violas in this period was a very unconventional idea. The work's also very unusual in that the two solo violas sort of chase each other through the piece, particularly in the first movement. The first movement is set up as a very intricate set of what we call canons, uh, which is a fairly fancy word for around. So you'll notice, if you're listening carefully, that one viola starts and a second or maybe a second and a half later, the second viola joins in, but invariably throughout the entire first movement, which lasts about five minutes, uh, one viola is always chasing the other viola, playing the exact same notes, but kind of two notes delayed. A very incredible, masterful trick that Bach can actually uh, have these two instruments playing identical music, but always two notes apart from each other. And so this idea of echoing, of imitating, of a canon is really the the primary uh, influence on Aaron's piece. So as you're listening to the Bach, I hope you listen to the way these two violas sort of chase each other through the entire piece. The first movement is, is very much constructed that way, and I must say that it's rather monochromatic in the way that the texture doesn't appreciably change. The, the themes are beautiful, the music is beautiful, but it's very much a continuous, almost like a minimalist texture. The second movement, as often as the case in Bach, is sort of a beautiful aria, a beautiful song. Uh, again, one viola chasing the other, but now chasing them at about 20 or 30 second intervals. So you have these beautiful lines that are sung first by one viola and then repeated by another. And to create a sort of contrast, the third and final very lively and joyful movement does not feature this kind of chasing, but the violas tend to play together, this massed two viola sound uh, to make it very different from the solo violas chasing each other in the first two movements. So here to begin our concert, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 6. The musicians of the Albany Symphony are unconducted. It seemed superfluous to have a conductor for a work for seven solo instruments. Here now, Bach's Sixth Brandenburg. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Johann Sebastian Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 6 in B-flat. The musicians of the Albany Symphony performed it. And that work served as sort of an overture or an introduction to the next work on the program, uh, this relatively new piece by Aaron J. Kernis, again commissioned by the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra as part of their new Brandenburg project. So Aaron, in creating this piece, really took as his inspiration this idea of close imitation and repetition, and in essence, the idea of one instrument echoing another, which one hears so clearly in the first movement of the, of the Bach that we've just listened to. The Concerto in Echoes is in three movements. The, the additional similarities to the Bach, in addition to this idea of echoing or of repetition uh, or of a round or canon, is that uh, Aaron stays 
rather close to the initial orchestration of the Bach. At the beginning of the piece, you hear only violas, cellos, bass. But as the piece progresses, he actually adds winds in to sort of create a bigger, richer color texture. But he never, in fact, introduces violins. In fact, neither of these pieces features any violin playing at all. So again, Aaron's piece occupies a similar sort of dark, uh, warm, rich, middle and lower partial world, as does the Bach. So the sound worlds I find to be rather similar. That's one of the great similarities between Aaron's piece and the Bach, which inspired it, as well as this idea of, of echo. Aaron's piece is in three movements, like the Bach as well. The first movement is called lontano, meaning distant, slash toccata, uh, sort of fast, lively, hammered sort of music, molto allegro. The second movement, poco espressivo, a little bit expressive. The third movement is an aria, dolente, sad, grazioso. So the first movement begins with this kind of strange little wispy playing. First the four solo violas and then the four solo cellos uh, play these little strange intervals, thirds and fourths, close little little kind of wispy intervals, which will become the building blocks of the music. And after a very brief playing of that, uh, he immediately launches into this very dynamic, exciting, and extraordinarily difficult uh, first movement, which, again, owes its inspiration greatly to the first movement of the Bach. Uh, But the solo lines, the four solo violas and the four solo cellos, are absolutely devilishly difficult to play. And each line is, in essence, an absolute solo, as are the solo lines in the Bach. So that first movement is kind of a jarring introduction to the concerto with echoes. It's followed by a very poignant and uh, in many ways very beautiful movement, the poco espressivo movement, which is kind of the heart and soul of the piece, about an eight or nine minute long aria uh, like the Bach, but much more involved with dissonant sounds and and lots of different kinds of sounds. But you'll hear from the very beginning of it, there's a solo viola playing, but she is in fact echoed little fragments of her slow expanding line are sort of echoed and sustained by the other three violas, and then that's amplified by the cellos. So you, you hear this kind of back and forth between the, uh, the violas and the cellos at the beginning of this slow and very beautiful slow movement. And then at a certain point, suddenly an oboe enters. A beautiful oboe solo ensues, and that's followed by brass, very uh, introspective, warm, rich, beautiful horns and trumpets entering, and other woodwind instruments as well. So the piece kind of expands into a big dramatic statement. It's built essentially as a passacaglia. A passacaglia is a work that has kind of a fixed bass or a chacon. It has a fixed bass line that kind of repeats over and over again, and different things are built upon it. No need to try to follow the bass line because it's somewhat free passacaglia, but it's, it's got this sort of cumulative intensification that happens as the piece progresses, as it gets more and more uh, agitated and and dramatic, and eventually winds down with a very beautiful, introspective, and very slow coda ending. So that's the, the second movement, the kind of heart and soul of the piece. And then finally, the third movement, unlike the Bach, which is kind of this joyful uh, finish to the work, Aaron's piece sort of took him in a somewhat darker direction. It's a, a beautiful, introspective uh, little little dance, like the Bach, which is in 6-8, yum, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, dum, da-dum, dum. It has a similar kind of lilting quality and begins with a beautiful English horn solo. Uh, but it ends very wistfully. I always think of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony when I hear this ending, that it kind of, it kind of fades away gradually as the music goes ever lower through the, the tessitura, the violas, and then the, the cellos, and finally ends up just with the basses singing this little fragment of melody, bringing the piece to a close. So here now, a work inspired by Bach's Six Brandenburg Concerto, loosely, Aaron Kurnis's Concerto with Echoes. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.
That was Aaron J. Curtis's Concerto with Echoes, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The final work on the first half of our program was a piece that I was very excited to discover, or I should say a, a set of pieces. This is actually a set of arrangements that Aaron did in 1996 at the request of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and their then-conductor Hugh Wolfe. It seems that, not surprisingly, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra was very eager to expand the chamber orchestra repertoire. If you know music for chamber orchestra, it's somewhat limited in that there's so many great orchestra pieces that are just too large for chamber orchestra. There are certainly great pieces for chamber orchestra, all of Haydn symphonies and Mozart and Beethoven and so on and so forth. But in the late 19th century and certainly the 20th century, there are not nearly as many sort of dynamic dramatic pieces for chamber orchestra. So the orchestra had this very unique idea of commissioning wonderful orchestrators, composers who have real exceptional skills for for assigning music to instruments and asking them to pick a piece that they love that they've always felt should be played by orchestra, a piano piece, a solo piece, a sonata, and amplify it and create an orchestral version. Uh, In fact, as Aaron described it, they really wanted composers to find late romantic pieces because they felt there needed to be more of that repertoire for chamber orchestra. But Aaron, who had always been captivated by this very late set of piano etudes by Claude Debussy, decided to take five of the etudes and uh, orchestrate them and to orchestrate them in an absolutely authentic Debussyan fashion. So for this piece, Aaron was in no way trying to you know, have his own way with or recast pieces in his own voice. He was really trying to channel his inner Debussy. And he is, in fact, as you'll hear, a remarkably sensitive and elegant and uh, impressionistic orchestrator. The Debussy etudes are a set of 12 works remarkable works that I really had not known. They're they're not even that well known by pianists for some reason, because I think they're just magnificent pieces. Two books, six in each book. And they were written very, very late in Debussy's life in 1915, only three years before his death, one of his very last major works, and uh, considered a very important late work, uh, set of late works of Debussy. The five etudes that that Aaron chose were first uh, for the five fingers after Monsieur Cherny, Cherny was a very famous uh, writer of of etudes himself. Uh, He was probably Beethoven's most famous pupil and has inflicted thousands of studies on pianists. I I still play Cherny almost every day. Books and books of pieces that sound kind of like bad Beethoven, but work on thirds and fifths and scales and arpeggios and such. Uh, So this was in honor of Monsieur Cherny. So it starts, of course, with a little up-down da-da-da-da-dee-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
protege of his and commission a short work from that young composer. Now, this was a very, in one way, a very easy thing to do, in another way, a very difficult thing to do. Aaron is a distinguished professor at Yale, where he's taught for quite a number of years now. He was at one time a student there and has become a distinguished professor there. And so he has a great number of very gifted students. So I think in one sense, it was a lovely idea. In another sense, it was a very challenging idea because so many of his students are so wonderful. Probably it was very difficult for him to find one he wanted to feature. But he obviously had wonderful taste because he selected a, a lovely young lady named Catherine Salfelder, who is um, currently finishing up a master's at Yale. Uh, she's 24 years old. And this is a work that Kate wrote specifically for our concert called Lux Perpetua, per Perpetual Light, obviously a reference to the uh, Catholic Requiem, the, the Prayer for the Dead. And it, it's a work that is a, a concerto for soprano saxophone and orchestra. The soprano saxophonist is Tim McAllister, a brilliant player who's actually played with the orchestra and with our new music, The Dogs of Desire, before, but we've never had as a soloist. Uh, he now teaches at Arizona State and is an incredible artist. I was so happy to be able to feature him. The work is in six movements, but they're continuous, so you need not worry yourself too much about them. They are introit, introduction, refractions, reflections, shadows, glimmers, and elegies. So the piece is all about light, perpetual light, but light in general and the qualities of light. I should also say that Kate wrote this piece just shortly after the, the death of her mother. She had spent a year, I guess, um, not, not at school, but a year caring for her mother who was um, very ill. And after her mother's death, she really hadn't composed music for pretty much a year. And when I called her and asked whether she might be willing to consider writing a concerto, and she selected the soprano saxophone, this was the first piece she wrote. So it's a very poignant somewhat introspective work, obviously, but at the same time, a great deal of joy and beauty in it, and also a great deal of Catholic liturgy. In fact, in the in the fifth part of the piece, she even quotes an ancient chorale, and it's a very sort of beautiful, bright, light-filled work. So the world premiere now of Catherine Salfelder's Lux Perpetua for solo saxophone and orchestra. Timothy McAllister is the soprano saxophone soloist, and the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes Podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was the opening work on the second half of our program, Catherine Salfelder's Lux Perpetua, Concerto for Soprano Saxophone and Orchestra, Tim McAllister was the solo saxophonist, and the orchestra was the Albany Symphony. Finally, we decided to close our, our monumental Aaron Kernis concert with a beautiful piece, which is a, an early favorite of his, a work that he's loved and cherished almost since birth, Felix Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 4, The Italian Symphony. This work is just such a bright, brilliant piece, a great uh, compliment to Kate's equally brilliant piece, Bright and Brilliant. Uh, it's a work that uh, was inspired by Mendelssohn's trip to Italy, a couple of trips to Italy. It was premiered in London in 1833. And interestingly, Mendelssohn, I guess, who was just an unbelievably prolific and fecund kind of creator, uh, just left the score with his friend Moscheles in, in London and went back to Germany after having had a huge success with the work. And then 
then didn't quite forget about it, but actually sat down and decided to revise it. So he got through a revision of movements two, three, and four, was going to revise the first movement, and then sort of, I guess, got involved in other projects, and so never finished the revisions. And so the revised version was ignored and, and, and dismissed, but it was only after Mendelssohn's life, essentially, that the, the Italian symphony, in its original first version, uh, really began to have performances and became the sort of timeless classical masterpiece that it's considered today. Uh, so it's much played and much loved, but in Mendelssohn's time, it was forgotten and kind of ignored. Uh, and yet it is such a radiant evocation of Italy and of the musical life of Italy, as well as an evocation of the lightness and the pure, simple, dramatic beauty of Mendelssohn's art. It's a piece to be cherished, and we love to play it every time it comes around. Uh, it begins, of course, with that wonderful Allegro Vivace, a very fast tempo. Uh, the second movement, the Andante con Moto, is reputed to be a, a, a depiction of a religious ceremony that Mendelssohn witnessed while in Italy. And that's a very, again, a very simple but extremely lyrical and beautiful, kind of a pure, almost a Mozartian kind of piece. The third movement, also the minuet or scherzo position of the piece, con moto moderato, uh, with a moderate motion, uh, is a, a very lyrical and wonderfully early romantic work, a, a classic kind of Mendelssohn song without words. And the last movement, uh, one of the most original of all finales in the repertoire, is a saltarello, a very lively uh, Italian dance. Actually, it's a combination of two kinds of, of dances. The first theme is a saltarello, and the second is a tarantella. The tarantella sounds just like its name. It's a, a very famous dance, but supposedly inspired by uh, the bite of the tarantula, because it was thought at the time that when a tarantula bit you, uh, it caused you to go sort of into spasms and jump around. And so that was the dance that uh, it caused. And it turns out that, and then you would, of course, die. It turns out that the tarantula bite, I'm told, is not lethal, or most tarantula bites are not, but uh, it certainly makes for some good dancing. So here now, the uh, Mendelssohn Italian Symphony, four movements. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.